BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Janet Napolitano became the 20th president to lead the University of California and the first woman to do so when she assumed the role in 2013. Now, after seven years, she is stepping down from her post on August 1st. And under her leadership, the UC system saw enrollment boosts, increased funding for undocumented students, and unveiled initiatives to increase community college student transfers and to expand Title IX efforts against sexual misconduct on campuses. She also faced her share of challenges, including bumping heads with former Governor Jerry Brown on her tuition plans and a headline-making audit scandal in 2017, and this year, COVID-19. Here with me to reflect on her tenure as UC president and also offer her thoughts on the future of the UC system is the president of the University of California, Janet Napolitano. Welcome, good to have you back with Thank us. Thank you, good morning. Good morning to you. And first of all, let me congratulate you on much to unpack because there's much that's been accomplished under your leadership in seven years. And also congratulate you on your health. I read an interview recently where you said you're cancer free and I was delighted to read that. So, um, and hope that that continues. Let's, uh, Me too. <laughs> I'll bet. Uh, let, let's talk first of all. Oh, and by the way, congratulations. I, I, you got the Green Power Leadership Award back in 2018. I became aware of that and just doing some reading about uh, all your years, your seven years. Uh, getting carbon neutral by 2025 was no small feat. Zero net uh, energy. But let me talk about your legacy with you. And let me talk about, I know that's a funny word to use even at this point. But you did really accomplish a great deal, and I want listeners perhaps who aren't familiar with what you did and maybe what you've been criticized for to get the whole picture here with us. Uh, the legacy includes enrollment expansion, as I said, particularly of minority enrollment, transfer students, uh, but it also includes um, uh, a leadership role in terms of sexual harassment and sexual violence, which I hope we can talk about. But what I want to first talk about is DACA, because it was not only you who sort of really brought DACA into being uh, when you were Homeland Security head, but you were the one who sued the Trump administration when they tried to get rid of DACA. So how do you feel in the wake of this Supreme Court decision? Oh, I, I was uh, I, I was thrilled um, uh, last Thursday when I got up early to watch uh, the Supreme Court opinions as they get posted and, and saw the first case was Department of Homeland Security versus Board of Regents of the University of California, which was our case, and uh, to find that they held that the Trump administration's attempt to rescind the program was arbitrary and capricious, and that they needed to start over, that in the meantime, DACA remains alive and well. And that must give you a great deal of feeling of satisfaction, because it was well, kind of your baby in some for ways. for me, it's for the hundreds of thousands of young people who are enrolled in DACA, and as a result, um, uh, are at our colleges and universities. They get work authorization. Uh, it's, a, it's a life changer for them. I only mention you in this because you assi actually si assigned the original directive. I mean, you did play a pretty preeminent role in this. And uh, <laughs> uh, let's not forget that. Also, um, let's talk about tuition because tuition has been frozen for the last seven of eight years. Uh, and it seems to be stabilized. You went through some real fights with Governor Brown. Uh, Governor Brown had a whole different idea of what the business model should be, but uh, let's reflect on that. Right, so uh, uh, during my seven years as president, uh, in-state tuition uh, has been flat, except one year when it went up two and a half percent. And there are no current plans to uh, raise in-state tuition. Uh, um, but it creates a quandary for the university because uh, if tuition is to be flat, that means that the state has to appropriate more money 
to be able to sustain the university and to sustain the university's growth. Uh, and um, uh, so that's uh, what we have been focused on these last years is, is really that legislative advocacy. You know, it was uh, brought to my attention that today is the 48th anniversary of Title IX, which gives us an opportunity to talk about that to some degree. I noticed the Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, has talked about uh, commitment to uh, Title IX and uh, sort of new rules uh, as she sees it. Uh, I'd like you not only to comment on where you see Title IX now, but what you see particularly in the future. Well, one of the things we did during my tenure as president was to totally reform the way we handle cases of sexual misconduct on our campuses. Uh, and uh, we created the first system-wide Title IX office to help supervise that work. Uh, and we've made a lot of progress. I think, unfortunately, the uh, revised Title IX rules that Secretary DeVos issued um, uh, go backwards. Uh, and uh, they, they define sexual misconduct too narrowly. They define uh, uh, where it can occur uh, too narrowly. Uh, uh, they make the hearings very adversarial, uh, which will be a deterrent to uh, survivors uh, to come forth. Uh, so um, we have been very upfront about our unhappiness with that proposed rule. You've also been upfront to some degree, uh, well, to a large degree, about unhappiness with the SATs and the ACTs, which now, after a couple of years of research, have been dropped uh, because of bias and discrimination, because uh, that bias and discrimination was uh, pretty much research showed to be against disadvantaged students. What are your thoughts now, particularly in light of the fact that many felt you were taking away a tool for admissions? And uh, this is going on, presumably, uh, well, until 2024 at this point. Well, the UC will be test optional for the next two years, meaning the students can decide for themselves whether they want to submit a score. Uh, then we will be test blind for two years. That means that when students submit a score, it can be used for things like course placement, uh, uh, qualification for certain scholarships, but it cannot be used in the actual admissions decision. And then by year five, we will have totally weaned our way uh, away from uh, the SAT and the ACT. And it's, and it's time that we did that. Um, when I looked at um, how we handle admissions, and we look at 14 different factors, uh, but we were jumping through all kinds of hoops uh, to mitigate uh, the known uh, biases in the SAT, um, uh, ACT, the correlation between uh, scores and family income. Uh, which uh, just seemed to me um, so inappropriate for a public university uh, to use. And so, um, uh, you, you know, we um, were at the forefront of the testing movement decades ago, but on reflection and uh, review uh, in, in this current time, uh, it, it is time, as I said, to wean our way uh, away from them. Talking, if you've just joined us, with Janet Napolitano, president of the University of California. She's former U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security, a position she held from 2009 to 2013, also former governor of Arizona. And uh, let's talk about what I think you have said uh, publicly was maybe perhaps, maybe not even perhaps, the biggest mistake in seven years, and that's the audit. And I think it's not inappropriate to say it was a bit of a scandal, to put it mildly, in 2017. Yeah, it was a, a, a certainly a low point in, in my career. And as I've acknowledged, uh, we, we certainly could have handled it differently and, and better. Um, but uh, in, in the end, um, we have uh, uh, implemented the recommendations of the audit. They, the recommendations were primarily focused on how we present the budget of the Office of the President and how we make it more clear uh, um, where the funds come from and, and where the funds go. And uh, so we have made major improvements in that area. It's a complicated budget, I, I won't fool you. Um, we have fund sources from something like 46 different sources of funds come through the university's uh, office of the president. Uh, but um, uh, it was not as clear as it should have been. It made it look like we were sitting on uh, millions of dollars of reserves, which we were not. Uh, and so there was a lot of cleanup to do. And so we've been cleaning it up. More transparent now, uh, fairly confident about that transparency, because as you say, there's a lot of money involved here, 36 
$1.5 billion for the whole system of 10 campuses. Right. The audit only involved the office of the president, and the office of the president's budget is around, uh, well, now it's around $860 million. So it's a very small part of the overall university enterprise. But nonetheless, the budget for the office of the president is extraordinarily complicated, and that's what we had to make more clear. As long as we're talking about money, I'm interested in your thoughts about the fact that there were losses of uh, some $600 million uh, just in March alone because of the pandemic. Uh, and that's quite a lot of money. Half of that was, I think, from medical centers, but the rest was from refunds for housing and dining fees. I don't know if you've tallied up yet what the losses are for April uh, or May, but this is really quite a, quite a hit, to put it mildly. And uh, thoughts about how you're going to recoup? Right. So um, uh, through the end of May, total losses for the university, about one and a half billion dollars. Um, now, uh, uh, 700 plus million of that are losses from the hospitals because they had to uh, cancel a lot of procedures in order to convert themselves into COVID-19 hospitals. Uh, um, we're now uh, uh, able to reschedule those procedures and uh, and, and so the, the revenue stream for the hospitals is, is coming back, but it will take a while to recover. Uh, the remaining losses at the campuses, as you said, um, uh, a bulk of that were housing and dining uh, refunds, the so-called auxiliary funds of, of the university, uh, uh, other refunds that we, that we uh, had, had to give. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, we are, uh, managing our way through that. Um, and uh, we are uh, now in the process of, of figuring out what our budget is likely to look like in 2020-2021. Will that budget also include, uh, I know each campus is looking to have contact uh, training, uh, contact testing, excuse me, and also uh, testing period, but also uh, quarantine plans, uh, there, there's, in fact, all the 10 campuses might be different on this, won't they? Well, we have a set of consensus uh, safety standards. Uh, they are basically threshold standards that the campuses will meet um, uh, before uh, reopening. Uh, they include things like testing, like tracing, like quarantining, like social distancing. Uh, um, and um, uh, all the campuses have elaborate plans uh, uh, to that effect uh, and, um, uh, and now are determining how much of their academic uh, program they, they can bring back on campus uh, and how much will remain online. So uh, our campuses, I think, will basically be hybrids uh, where a great amount of uh, the educational program will be online. Uh, but certain classes better held in person uh, will be held in person, small classes, wet labs, classes that need to be done in a studio setting, uh, those sorts of things uh, um, will get priority for campuses as, as they um, uh, slowly begin to uh, uh, try to restore normal ca campus operations. Well, what do you see overall, though, as the effect of COVID-19 on university finances and, for that matter, academic programs? Uh, well, on finances, not good. Uh, you know, we've certainly had losses, and uh, and so uh, we're, we're cutting costs. Um, we've uh, frozen uh, um, uh, most salaries. Um, we've frozen the faculty uh, salary scales. Uh, the chancellors and I each took a 10% salary cut. Uh, um, and, and, and so looking at how we contain costs is, is number one. And uh, number two is uh, we'll look for uh, how we can uh, borrow uh, uh, some funds. Uh, um, uh, there is so-called cheap money out there. Uh, and I think uh, better to look for bridge funding from that source than to actually cut into the um, uh, the bones of the university. Um, this is a strong, resilient university, and it's going to take several years to work our way through COVID. Um, it's going to really take until there's a vaccine. Uh, and so uh, we're looking at our budget, not just for the coming year, but really as a, as a three-year issue. 
You're going to still be able to follow the track of allowing admission for more students who are from California. This is a big issue. It remains a big issue. In fact, I think Assemblyman Kevin McCarty said uh, it's what most Californians care about. Uh, and there, there's been certainly a lot of enhancements of that, but can you stay on track? Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, you know, applications were up again this year. There's certainly high demand to um, come to the University of California for good reason. Uh, it's a great set of uh, public uh, uh, university campuses. Um, uh, we have a, a, a region's policy that basically caps the number of out-of-state or international students at 18% of the overall uh, student body. Uh, and we um, are managing to that cap. You know, one of the things we don't know this fall is what the actual enrollment will be. Uh, how many students will actually uh, show up, pay tuition, uh, keep making progress toward their degrees uh, versus uh, uh, those who may decide uh, to take a so-called gap year. Now, my view is, you know, you normally take a gap year when you can travel or you have some kind of fancy internship lined up and uh, those opportunities aren't available this year. So what would you do during a gap year? You know, stay home and bother your parents. Um, and, you know, might as well uh, stay focused, uh, uh, stay enrolled, keep making progress toward that degree. Talking with Janet Napolitano, president of the University of California, former U.S. Secretary of Homeland and Security. And if you have questions for President Napolitano or opinions or reflections you'd like to share about her time as UC president, you can give us a call, and I invite you to do that now. Our toll-free number is 866-733-6786. We invite you to join us. Again, toll-free, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. As I'm sure you're well aware, President Napolitano, uh, 209, uh, Proposition 209 may be coming to a halt, the legislature possibly doing away with it, which opens up the possibility for affirmative action again. You want to get your thoughts on that? Affirmative action, is it time for it to come back to you soon? Sure. So, yeah, and so the, uh, the Board of Regents of the university had a special meeting uh, uh, a week ago, Monday, and voted to support putting Prop 209 back on the ballot. In other words, to support um, what's known as ACA 5, uh, authored by uh, Assemblywoman uh, Shirley Weber, uh, and also voted to support the repeal of uh, 209. What 209 did is it, uh, among other things, it forbade the use of race, ethnicity, or gender uh, in any consideration of university admissions. Uh, and that had an immediate deleterious impact on uh, the number of African-American and, and Latin, Latinx students that uh, we had at the university. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, we consider 14 factors in looking at the whole student for admission. It was such an artificial limitation not to be able to consider race, gender, or um, ethnicity. Uh, it, it was a false limitation, and and it and it and it didn't work uh, uh, for purposes of a public university that you know should uh, to some degree reflect the diversity of the state. So uh, I personally am also in support of the repeal of 209. Let me talk with you also about what I believe is still an ongoing crisis, perhaps exacerbated to a great degree, no perhaps about it, by the pandemic. I'm talking about the housing crisis and the student hunger crisis. You've done a lot on both scores, particularly with hunger, with the food pantries and actually getting more housing and so forth. But there still must be of great and profound concern and will be to whoever succeeds you. Right. Student housing has been... Uh a perpetual and serious concern. Uh, you know, one of the things we uh, uh, started was, uh, we called it the Presidential Initiative on Student Housing, but we went on a real uh, construction binge uh, in the last uh, four years. We've uh, added something like 19,000 beds. We're on schedule to add another uh, 10,000 more. Um, uh, and housing is going to change in light of COVID. Um, we, we won't be able to have triples anymore. Uh, uh, and even having doubles is uh, uh, going to be uh, difficult. Uh, so we won't be able to house as many students um, 
as, as before. So uh, student housing remains a concern. And then food security, you know, it's hard to imagine, but uh, a number of our, of our students um, are food insecure. Uh, and uh, so uh, we have been devoting resources to having food pantries on all the campuses, to having uh, uh, programs uh, such as uh, when, when students who have meal cards uh, don't use all the meals on their meal cards, those get donated into a pool and uh, can be used by um, others. Um, so uh, really trying to take care of students' basic needs uh, so they can focus where they need to focus, which is on getting their degrees. It's going to be more difficult also to maintain the kind of Pell Grants and financial assistance that's become so much a part of UC system? Yeah, Pell Grants are, are uh, a federal program, as you know. Um, uh, I think some 38% of our students are uh, Pell eligible. Um, uh, the Congress has, uh, over the last year, um, uh, gradually increased the amount that can be awarded uh, for a Pell Grant, but a Pell Grant does not cover the full cost of attending the University of California. Now, uh, we can add aid to that. So we add the Cal grants and we add uh, our own contribution to student aid. And, and where that comes from is that we take one third of every tuition dollar and put it right back into student aid. And the end result of that packaging is that um, for students who come from families that make less than $80,000 a year, they pay no tuition at the University of California. Not enough people know that, but uh, that's, uh, that's something like 58% of our in-state residents actually pay no tuition. Talking with Janet Napolitano, president of the University of California and former U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security and also former governor of Arizona, we're talking about mainly your tenure at UC, but I noticed in today's New York Times there's a cover story about Arizona possibly turning around to the Democrats. Uh, any thoughts about that before we go to a break here? Yeah, Arizona is definitely in play. Uh, it's uh, much less uh, Republican than it was when I was uh, in office. Uh, uh, I was in public office there from 98 to 2009. Uh, um, and uh, uh, they just recently elected a Democratic U.S. Senator. They have another hot Senate race that I think will uh, flip a seat from red to blue. Uh, and I think uh, uh, Joe Biden has a real chance there. And again, we're talking to uh, Janet Napolitano, who represents a whole different form, form of leadership. Uh, when she came on board, it was described as top down, and there's a different style now that she's become associated with. We can talk about that as well, but we do want to hear from you. If you have questions for President Napolitano, give us a call. 866-733-6786 is the number to reach us. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. Listening to Forum on KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny. Our guest this hour is Janet Napolitano, president of the University of California. And uh, President Napolitano, you said uh, you'd be taking a year-long sabbatical after your retirement in August, and then maybe, uh, not maybe, I guess you're going to join the Berkeley Goldman School of Public Policy, but maybe thinking about or considering running again for public office or taking a cabinet post or saying, I believe in one interview, I look good in black. Um, <laughs> I was joking. Um, uh, no, my plan is uh, to take a sabbatical year, uh, uh, which uh, uh, I'm entitled to after seven years as president. And then uh, I'm actually a tenured faculty member in the Goldman School of Public Policy at Berkeley. And I'm looking forward to actually being a faculty member. But you wouldn't turn down a nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court, I take it. Well, you, you never say <laughs> never, but I think uh, on the scale of things of zero to 100, how likely is that? I, I'd say about a one. <laughs> let me read some comments that are coming in, um, and let me read a couple of them and get your response. David writes, 
As a parent of a student at UC Santa Cruz, I am not impressed with how TAs were treated, their current conditions, and the quality of my child's education in the last six months. As a leader, unfair and equitable conditions cannot be allowed to persist, contract or not. And another listener, Robert, says, why has Janet Napolitano been so hostile toward the plight of desperate graduate student instructors pleading for help to pay their housing costs? So um, let's talk about TAs and graduate student instructors and your thoughts. Yeah, uh, not hostile uh, um, uh, to 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 that, um, uh, but you know what I what I was uh, hostile to, if you can use that word, is the notion of a wildcat strike. Uh, uh, we had a collective bargaining agreement with the union that the TAs uh, uh, voted in uh, uh, that um, had not only uh, compensation but it had. Uh, a chunk of money for childcare, it paid for healthcare, it waived tuition uh, for the TAs because they are also graduate students. Um, uh, so it was a very comprehensive package and a very competitive package uh, with uh, similar uh, grad student agreements around not just California, but around, around the country. Uh, and so the Wildcat strike really undercut the value of having a collective bargaining agreement. And the value for the university in having them is to have labor peace. And, uh, um, and so uh, we just were not in a position to negotiate uh, pursuant to a wildcat strike where the strikers were holding grades hostage among other things um, to the detriment of the un undergraduates at, at, at Santa Cruz. So. Um, you know, the issues they raise are important issues uh, and they should be negotiated and will be, I'm sure, on the table uh, in another two years time when the collective bargaining agreement is, is, is up and due. But um, I think if we're going to respect the collective bargaining process and respect the unions that um, are voted in, then uh, we have to take a hard position on the Wildcat strike. Would you agree, though, with the sentiment that, uh, for the most part, these graduate assistants are not only underpaid, but perhaps uh, there's more of an onus on them uh, than there ought to be? Well, you know, uh, you have to think about uh, um, uh, that um, the compensation uh, for graduate students is, is not as, um, as if it's uh, their full-time job. They are also students, and it's really... Uh, a subsidy for them to uh, be students. And uh, so when you look at the entire package, uh, uh, um, uh, most of them made, you know, around 26,000 a year, they had their tuition rate uh, waived, they got a 3300 or $3,600 childcare subsidy, uh, they got their health care covered. Uh, um, it, you know, like I said, when you look at the entire package, it's a very competitive package. Let me get some callers on here. Mark, we begin with you. Join us. You're on the air. Uh, hello. I'd like to read a little bit from an article in the Mercury News from uh, San Jose Mercury News from April of 2017. It goes as follows. A scathing state audit Tuesday accused University of California President Janet Napolitano's office of hiding tens of millions of dollars in reserves, even from its own board of regents, and creating a secret spending plan while also padding the salaries and benefits of her staff. The eye-popping report comes as UC plans to hike tuition this fall and has already prompted one UC regent, Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, to publicly request a reversal of that increase. So I'd like a comment, please, from Ms. Napolitano's side. Uh, thanks for that, Mark. Jenna Napolitano. Yeah, we've already talked about uh, yes, the audit. It was definitely a low point in my tenure. Um, uh, when you actually read the text of the entire audit, it was really a critique of how we presented our budget. Uh, not that monies were being misspent, uh, not, not that anything nefarious was being done. Uh, but that it was too opaque. And uh, as I said earlier, uh, we've done a lot of work, invested literally thousands of hours in reforming the entire budget process for the office of the president. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think that um, if that audit were to be done today, it would come out very differently. 
was reading an interview you did, and uh, that came up in the interview, the audit again, and you uh, said, you know, if you make a mistake, you fix it, you, you take uh, responsibility for it, you fix it, and uh, you own it. Um, and I recently heard Vice President Biden say similar things, uh, and I'm not trying to uh, present a case for Joe Biden here by any means, but it's it's just interesting about the differences you see between let's say, that kind of attitude uh, from you or from Vice President Biden and uh, our own president, uh, President Trump, who seems to be unable to make uh, admission of a mistake. Thoughts about that? And well, he certainly has a different leadership style than, than, than I do or that uh, Joe Biden does. But look, who amongst us hasn't made mistakes uh, uh, over the course of their lifetime? And I think if uh, you, you're in a state of perpetual denial of your mistakes, then you're not improving as a human being. Uh, uh, you have to, uh, like I said in that earlier interview, you have to learn from it, you have to acknowledge it, you have to own it, and you have to fix it. And that's what we've been, uh, in, have embarked on at, at the university. Here's Steve, a caller from Berkeley. Steve, you're on, good morning. Uh, I can't hear. Yeah, Steve. We're, we're not hearing you, Steve. I'm sorry to say. We'll try. We'll have to try to get a better connection with Steve and and maybe get another caller up here. But uh, May Beth writes: the top students in California cannot gain access to their choice in the UC system. My 4.3 GPA son, from a competitive high school, was turned down along with the majority of his peers. When will the UC system serve California students? So you're still hearing that complaint, President Napolitano? Yeah, I think we're going to continue to hear it. Uh, we're, we we. Uh, you know, we have so many qualified students in California, but uh, the point of, uh, uh, of it is that we, you know, have grown undergraduate uh, enrollment from California um, uh, uh, from 166,000 when I started to 185,000 uh, now. Uh, uh, we've um, uh, grown uh, transfer student enrollment, uh, those who come from our community colleges, so that now we literally have one transfer student for every two uh, freshmen. Uh, and so uh, um, we have been growing California in enrollment. Now, one of the things that we could use some help on in this regard is from the legislature, because uh, um, we've been growing enrollment at a much faster pace than the legislature has been uh, uh, paying for that enrollment growth. Uh, and that's going to be a uh, struggle. Uh, 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 one of the things I'm going to have to leave my successor uh, because uh, um, uh, it, it's, it's not, uh, it doesn't quite turn square corners there. I think we have Steve now. Steve, I hope we can hear you now. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Proportional representation as a goal is unconstitutional, and it is a quota. So you say you don't have a quota. Well, your goal is proportionality to the state population because you keep talking about underrepresentation. The issue is with selected campuses, Berkeley, UCLA, and San Diego. Otherwise, there's plenty of room at the other campuses. There's plenty of room at CSU and community colleges. So by discriminating on the basis of race other than merit, you're in violation of Equal Rights Amendment, and it's a public university, so you shouldn't discriminate. If you have underrepresentation, it's okay. They can compete on the basis of merit. Steve is bringing up quotas. Uh, can I go to you on yeah, that? Yeah, and I don't think I said a quota or a cap. Uh, what I've said is that race and gender are uh, uh, important characteristics to be able to include, uh, along with all the other factors we look at for uh, uh, creating a, a, a class, uh, a cohort at the University of California. Uh, and I think it's a relevant uh, characteristic. So, um, uh, and I think we have to uh, disagree perhaps with Steve. I don't think we live in a so-called race blind society. If anything, the events of the past weeks have uh, brought that to the forefront, uh, and uh, and and how structural racism is is part of our country. That our country is not yet meeting its aspirations uh, to be uh, equal for all. So uh, uh, what I'm saying is that 
um, in, in, the, uh, in the evaluation of a whole student, we should be able to look at uh, an important characteristic of a student, which is their gender and their race. Well, 209 uh, really prohibited that, but the reality is that the Supreme Court did not. Uh, you can use race in evaluations outside of California, and it's being done outside of California. Oh, oh, absolutely. The Supreme Court ruled uh, in a Texas case that uh, race could be uh, factored into uh, uh, higher education admissions. So uh, I think the premise of the question was, was inaccurate. Let me again invite you to join us if you have questions for President Napolitano, opinions or reflections you'd like to share about her time as UC president. Join us at 866-733-6786 or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions you may have to forum at kqed.org. And here's Michael. Michael, join us. You're on the air. Uh, yeah, can you hear me okay? Yes. Well, I could. Go ahead. Now, now I can't. Yeah, there. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, I am um, very grateful to have attended uh, one of the UC campuses many years ago. Uh, and so thank you for your service. Um, I'm curious about with the uh, replacement, or I guess uh, phasing out the SATs and the ACTs, and given, you know, kind of the wide range of metrics uh, for grading amongst high schools, um, what what measure will then be used to judge an applicant's academic uh, uh, readiness to enter the UC system? Right. So I think what uh, um, uh, will happen is that um, uh, our admissions um, officers will norm the grades by uh, by the high school. In other words, um, if uh, a high school uh, tends to produce lots of students who have grade point averages above, you know, 4.5, uh, um, they'll, they'll be able to take that um, into account. Uh, uh, on, on the other hand, if a high school has grades that average out to 3.5, they'll be able to take that in, into account. And, and we have the ability and technology to do that. Let me thank Michael for the call. We don't know who your successor is going to be at this point, but has too much of the job been involved in fundraising? Has there some way to cut through that for whomever your successor might be? Well, um, uh, the fundraising I, I primarily do is on uh, both uh, in Washington, D.C. with uh, the U.S. Congress and in Sacramento with our state legislature. Um, uh, and, and then I occasionally get brought in uh, for certain um, uh, uh, donors, um, but the, most of that kind of fundraising is handled by the chancellors at the campus level. And the legislative or meeting with the governor, I mean, you went through some, uh, perhaps what could be described as trying times with Jerry Brown. Uh, that was a lot of your time. Yeah, well, I think it's fair to say Governor Brown and I didn't see uh, eye to eye on, on uh, many things, um, uh, but we ultimately reached an agreement. Uh, uh, the agreement simply stated was that we would hold in-state tuition flat for two years and he would increase uh, the state appropriation by 4% uh, uh, over the next uh, 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 three years. And uh, that's, that's how we proceeded. So. Uh, um, but but we had a tussle to get there, no doubt. Also, when we look back at the seven years uh, you spent at UC uh, as president, uh, you managed to raise a minimum wage uh, at the university for uh, quite a number of employees. Uh, that was that a battle? You know, no. Um, uh, uh, but we were. Um, one of the first uh, uh, public institutions in, in California to adopt the $15 an hour minimum wage. Uh, and the plain fact of it is, is that most of our employees actually make more than that, but we wanted to make sure that we at, le at least set that floor. Um, and also that those who uh, did contract work for the university, um, uh, outside contractors, um, uh, when we hired them, would also pay at least that minimum wage. And I'd like to get your thoughts about the college admission scandal that involved some celebrities and so forth. There was some action taken when you were in charge. Uh, what's the situation now? 
boy, that admission scandal, uh, it, it angered me so deeply um, uh, because it really uh, challenged the whole uh, validity of college admissions. Um, uh, we had one or two uh, uh, our campuses, uh, had uh, one or two incidents. It was not nearly as widespread as some of the other colleges around the country. Um, uh, but uh, since then, we did our own internal audit uh, of admissions and admissions policies. Um, uh, uh, we made a number of recommendations. Those are being implemented by the campuses. Uh, but uh, we want students and their families throughout the state uh, to know that we turn very square corners where admissions are concerned and that uh, a possible don donation by a parent uh, uh, doesn't influence uh, admissions. Um, uh, it, it never should, and it, and it shan't at the University of California. We bring another caller aboard. That's Charlie. Charlie, welcome. You're on the air with us. Thank you very much. Um, it's an honor to speak to you, Ms. Napolitano. Um, I teach high school in uh, San Francisco Bay Area, and it seems to me that in the last 20 years or so, the number of kids that are graduating with an intention of going to a four-year school, that that's sort of become an expectation, and the numbers have increased dramatically, as has our population in California. At the same time, we've only expanded the UC system in terms of UC Merced, one campus, and the CSUs have added a few schools, Channel Island, San Marcos, Monterey Bay. But it just seems to me that we need to build another several UC campuses perhaps in the Reading area or somewhere where there isn't a, a school. Yeah, so, um, uh, you know, one of the things that I've been uh, thinking about is how we increase um, accessibility to the University of California and how we could do it without necessarily building another bricks and mortar campus. Um, you know, building a bricks and mortar campus is a, is a very high dollar um, uh, investment. Uh, and, you know, it takes a while. Uh, you know, well, Merced, excuse me, you did uh, double the capacity at UC Merced under your leadership. We did. And, and we're still growing Merced. And, uh, um, uh, but Merced is now more than a decade old. And, um, uh, and it, you know, it, it is still, it's a very exciting campus. We've got an exciting new chancellor starting there uh, in July, uh, Juan Sanchez Munoz. Um, uh, but um, nonetheless, uh, um, uh, in terms of overall accessibility, I think, you know, one of the lessons learned from uh, this uh, pandemic uh, is that we can successfully educate students uh, uh, using online uh, classes. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, with those lessons learned, uh, uh, if we uh, integrate more online into the academic program of the university, uh, uh, not removing the in-person residential experience, because that has so many other values to the student. Um, but nonetheless, um, if, if we are uh, hybrid and uh, remain somewhat hybrid, uh, that may itself enable us to uh, grow uh, and enroll more students. So um, I think we're going to have to do some thinking outside the box um, because the caller is right. Uh, we have an increasing number of high school students in California who complete the A through G courses. Those are the courses required uh, for admission to UC or CSU. They want to go to a four-year school, uh, and, and we need to really look at our availability for them. And I thank the caller and bring another caller on. That's Carlos in San Francisco. Carlos, welcome. You're on the air. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for your service. Um, so I have Two follow-up questions related to the previous caller's um, item about the SAT. So um, you had mentioned that the adjustment is going to be based upon norming for schools and their grading averages, but the variation actually happens on an individual teacher basis. So if I'm in a school that has easy grading, but I have teachers who are normal graders or even tough graders, I'm going to be penalized. 
The second question relates to the ongoing usage of the SAT to determine merit-based scholarships for students. And aren't we just perpetuating the access to affordability, especially penalizing our low-income students of color? And I'll take the response off the air. All right. Thank you for the questions, Carlos. President Napolitano. Yeah, so um, uh, obviously, uh, you know, um, uh, where grading is concerned, uh, you know, different teachers have, uh, you know, different standards. Um, high school students have many teachers. They don't uh, typically have just one. Uh, and, you know, our admissions officers are very skilled at uh, drilling down in terms of uh, students' academic performance in high school. And they look at things like, did the student uh, take advantage of as many AP courses as were actually offered at that high school? Uh, and if not, why not? Uh, um, you know, uh, did the student's academic performance improve over the time in high school um, so that you can account for uh, poorer performance during the freshman and sophomore year, but something clicked by the time they were a junior and all of a sudden they were really um, um, performing well. So um, our admissions counselors evaluate hundreds of thousands of applications every year, and they're very, uh, uh, very skilled at that. And with respect to the continued use of the SAT for certain scholarships, in reality, there are very few scholarships that um, are, are tied at all to um, SAT. Uh, um, and we have uh, quite a few scholarships uh, that are offered on, on the basis of uh, diversity uh, and also other kinds of merit. So uh, I, I actually think that over time, even those few SAT related scholarships will um, uh, go away or be reformed. We spoke a bit, uh, President Palatano, about how you think the campuses, or not how you think, but certainly how they're going to be changing over the long term, uh, given the COVID pandemic. Uh, what are your thoughts and hopes, though, in light of that for the future of the UC system? So I think um, uh, what the pandemic is uh, demonstrating for us is how resilient the university is. I mean, the pandemic happened and uh, you know, with, within days, uh, uh, our campuses had basically emptied out, except for students who had nowhere else to go. They were allowed to remain on campus. Um, uh, we had converted our hospitals to COVID-19 uh, hospitals. Uh, we had um, uh, transformed our instruction to um, online or remote learning, as, as they call it. Uh, so that classes could uh, continue. Uh, and uh, on top of everything else, uh, we started over 300 research projects associated with COVID, looking at everything from new testing modalities to new therapeutics, uh, to actual um, uh, basic science work necessary for the creation of a vaccine. So, um, you know, I think in terms of our mission, which is uh, teaching, public service, and research. Uh, um, we uh, really did so much in all of those three things. And now what we have to do is uh, uh, look at this not just as a short-term issue, but as I mentioned earlier today, as really a multi-year issue and maybe lessons learned for the indefinite future. Since you mentioned lessons learned, uh, as we talk about your seven years, uh, you started... Uh really with many people adverse uh, to your being appointed, not only because of your lack of academic background uh, or experience, but also because of your role in deportations. And you started funding for uh, free legal services for uh, immigrant students and helped them through meetings with them on a regular basis. I guess my real question in this is what you learned about leadership. I had mentioned top-down leadership. You kind of uh, crafted a different form of leadership. Well, I think uh, when I, I started, I was a former governor and cabinet secretary. I, you know, I was used to kind of a command and control, if I use that phrase, uh, style of leadership. But a university is a very different type of institution. And uh, it really uh, works through a, a theory of shared governance and uh, consultation. Um, uh, uh, and a more consultative type of leadership. Doesn't mean you don't lead, doesn't mean you don't uh, 
uh, set a vision doesn't mean you don't set goals. It doesn't mean uh, you don't have uh, measures of performance that and expectations, uh, but uh, it, it is a different style of, of leadership. And, um, uh, you know, I, uh, I think uh, over seven years, I've, I, I've, I've made that transition, but it was not an immediate transition, I have to say. It was probably in some ways a difficult transition, I imagine, no? Well, yeah, you know, um, uh, you know, anytime you get to this stage in your career and, and uh, you have to uh, uh, acknowledge that you need to make a major change, uh, uh, you first have to realize that and then you have to be willing to do the work uh, to make that change. And, and uh, um, you know, I've been very fortunate uh, overall. The university has been a very supportive environment uh, for me, and uh, the work is certainly exciting and, and challenging. Well, we thank you for all the good work you've done and wish you good luck and good fortune and above all, good health, and may indeed see you in black. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Janet Napolitano, President of the University of California and former U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security, as well as former governor of the state of Arizona. We're with you here Monday through Friday. And if you have some thoughts about what you hear on Forum, email them to us, forum at kqed.org. Thanks for being a part of this morning's program. And for all of us at KQED Public Radio, I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.